Well, good morning. We're going to make a start. Today's going to be uh, a fair bit different uh, for a whole bunch of reasons, one of uh, which is that the kids are staying in with us today, which would be really good. Uh, we, uh, as it was mentioned last week, we think it's pretty important for kids to learn how to sit in church and uh, be part of church. And also last week we looked at the fact that the church is a family, it's a household of God. Uh, and the household, any person's household, you can come over to our household if you want sometime and check it out if you don't have kids. Um, but it's not neat and it's noisy. And, uh, and so this morning it'll be a little bit, maybe a little bit noisier. There'll be a little bit more movement than normal. I really hope and pray that this morning the kids are actually going to be able to focus a little bit and actually learn some stuff this morning as well. So uh, what we're doing today is we're actually having a... Um, a, a, an order of service, so to speak, that follows the first seven verses of Psalm 95. So you can expect that uh, there'll be probably five to ten minutes of talking at three different times, a bit of singing in between, because that's what happens in Psalm 95. And um, that will be it for the morning. Okay, so there won't be a big slab of uh, someone preaching. It'll be five to ten minutes at a time. And uh, there'll be a little bit of stuff in there that hopefully the kids will get something out of. What I did want to do is I wanted to start by reading the first seven verses of Psalm 95, and we're going to read it twice. I'll read it once, and then uh, I'd love it if uh, you could help me out in the second reading. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let's come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let's kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. One of the ways that this uh, psalm actually used to be used uh, in the Old Testament is the, uh, the priests would stand and they would call the people to come and worship, and the people would respond. And you can see in the uh, structure of the psalm on the, on the screen there that I've got different colours because that's the pattern of Psalm 95 is the priest would stand up and uh, he would say the first couple of verses and then the people would respond and they would actually respond with the truths that they know to be true about God, the things they know to be true about God. So I thought what would be cool today, and I know that lots of churches do this sort of stuff, but the Bible does it, so that's why I think it's a good thing to do. I'm going to read the call. And I'd love it if you'd read the response. Is that okay? And uh, in our prayer time prior to the service this morning, uh, we read Psalm 145. Psalm 145 says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. So your praise and your worship of God ought to be proportional to his greatness. So when you read it, it'd be, I think it would be good if you read it with a bit of gusto. I don't know how that sounds for you when you read something with gusto, but the truths of God are good, aren't they? Amen. They are. So let's read them like they're good. All good. Let's uh, pull the trigger. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let's make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Hey, come, let's worship. Let's worship God and bow down to him. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker.
Excellent. So today, I'm just going to read a, a short quote from uh, C.S. Lewis. Today is really a test of your enjoyment of God. If you enjoy God more, you praise him more and you worship him more. Check this quote out from uh, C.S. Lewis's comments on the Psalms. But the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval or the giving of honour. I'd never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favourite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favourite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles and even sometimes politicians and scholars. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. This is a truth about praise. You will praise better if you enjoy more. So my encouragement to you this morning is to seek after God and enjoy God more and your praise will be better for God. All right. Let's have a look at the first couple of verses of uh, Psalm 95. I want to throw a couple of things your way. I come, let us sing to the Lord. Let's make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. You see, there's lots of times in the Bible where the instruction to uh, people to worship is, is actually varied and it's different. Sometimes the, uh, in, in Psalms, I think it is, it says that, the, that worship is silent. Sometimes worship is actually even tears. It talks about in Psalms. Coming to God being in his presence in tears. But in Psalm 95, it's sing. Now, this is interesting because in Australian culture, especially for males, if you sing, I mean, it's, unless you're kind of in a pop band, it's kind of like, and this is no offence to girls because girls are cool, well, I'm married one, right? But you're a bit of a girl if you're a bloke and you sing. But the interesting thing I find is uh, singing is very much a cultural thing. Um, both the negative uh, pressure to not sing and the pressure to sing. One of the things I'd love to do is actually go over to Wales and watch a rugby game in Wales because what you get is you get all these men in this stadium and they all start singing. And over there, it's kind of a dodgy thing if you don't sing. So today, God would have us come to him earnestly. You know, uh, Jeremiah says that you actually find God when you seek God with all of your what? All of your heart. I wonder what it's like when you actually find him. And I'm sure that in your life, there's been times in your life where you've just gone, I sought him with all of my heart and I found something in him that I never even imagined I would get. And that's actually possible today. And I wonder in your own life at the moment whether you'd actually say, I think I'm in a bit of a season where I'm seeking him with just about the best that my heart's got to offer. See, the psalmist starts here and the psalmist says, come. And in saying, come, what is he saying? He's saying, you're actually not in the place of worship and praise as much as you ought to be. So come, walk. I mean, if you look up the, the Hebrew definition for the word that they uh, translate come, you know, one of the main translations of it is walk. And so this morning, the psalmist would say, walk. Let your heart walk closer toward God and enjoying him and worshipping and praising him. You see, uh, I remember hearing Ravi Zacharias say once that Christianity is one of the most singing religions on the face of the planet. And if you go to the Buddhists, what do the Buddhists do? Well, the Buddhists chant. 
I uh, jumped on a bunch of Muslim websites. They discourage singing. You don't sing when you're a Muslim. But in Christianity, what do we do? Well, we sing. And we don't sing like the Stoics, do we? We don't think emotions are evil and bad. We sing with enthusiasm because our praise ought to be proportional to the greatness of God. Anyone know how long Ayers Rock is? I got on a tourist website this morning. It's about 3.6 k's long. Because one of my boys came up to me and he goes, seriously, you just get a dozer under that and you can shift it. All right? Just going, nah, not at 3.6 k's long. You're not getting any dozer under it that's going to shift it. Okay? And you know, what does it say in, uh, in verse 1 there? It actually says that God is the rock of your salvation. I don't think it's overplaying it to say God is the heir's rock of your salvation. What's good about a rock? Well, the good thing about a rock is that your salvation's not going to disappear overnight. There's, you know, a week ago we had 60, 70 k an hour gusts of wind uh, blowing through the place. The rock's still going to be there the next morning, isn't it? In the storm, the lightning, the storm. A rock's a good place to have for, for safety and security if you're under attack, isn't it? Don't you get behind a rock? No one can get you behind a rock. They're shooting at you. God is the rock of our salvation. And you know what? Here's where I'd love it if some people wanted to throw in. You know, check out verse 2 there. It actually says the lubricant of praise and worship is what? It's Thanksgiving. I'll tell you a couple of stories. And then I'd love uh, for some people to throw in. At our house often, uh, not even going to say who this is, but at our house, sometimes at dinner time, boys come out of the shower, out of the bath, haven't even seen what's for dinner. They come out, I hate this dinner. All right? Then the next one comes in, he hasn't seen it either. I hate it too. All right? And I feel pretty gutted for my wife, you know, because she's put in a fair bit of time cooking the thing and the boys are coming out and just dishing out unthankfulness. And uh, so one of the things we've been teaching the boys is it's really, really important to be thankful even if you don't like something. I'll give you another story. I, uh, in my really early days as a preacher, I used to go out to uh, Alvaro Presbyterian Church. And uh, out at Alvaro Presbyterian Church, there was this man, and his name was Dick. And uh, dead set, I'm not, even, I'm not even making this up, he didn't know how old he was and no one else knew. Okay? Just didn't know when he was born, he was in his 90s, and uh, he used to ride his pushy from Warwick to Toowoomba all the time, right? So you can imagine a 90-year-old 50 years ago riding a dodgy pushy from Warwick to Toowoomba, and he was all hunched over, I think, from hunching over on the bike. And he was one of those, and I don't mean to dishonor the man, the man's passed away now, but he was one of those guys that didn't quite shave everywhere on his face. You know what I'm saying? And there's bits of hair all over the place, and he had these sideys, and they weren't tight sideys, they were kind of wispy kind of all over the place sideys and you know what he'd do he would sit down in the front of this church and there was probably 15 people in the church and he was one of these older guys that would just rock backwards and forwards and you know what he'd be saying a lot of the time while I was preaching he'd be going thank you thank you thank you thank you and he'd just keep doing that and here I am dodgy preacher got not much to contribute and there's an old man who probably outstrips me in spiritual maturity by decades and he's sitting there and he's blessed and has got a thankful heart about God and about what's being preached. And I kid you not, I mean, the, the typical thing in the Prezi church is you go and stand at the door and everyone shakes your hand on the way out. 
And uh, he would come up to me and he'd shake my hand and he'd say, thank you, thank you, thank you. He had such a thankful heart that someone would come to his church and tell people about Jesus. And you know, it, it made me think, if I just contrast those stories, when people are really unthankful and they come in and they, and they express that really clearly, the person who uh, is in a powerful position who can actually make contributions to them becomes more unwilling to make a contribution, don't they? You just don't want to. You just think, well, blow you. If you're not going to be thankful, you just won't have any dinner. But what happens when someone comes in with an overflowing heart of thankfulness is it just lubricates things. I wonder if in your life how thankful you are. And I'm sure that there are times where you're very, very thankful. And I can tell you that if you think about God and that he's a person and that he has a heart too, because the Bible talks about that, you come to him with a thankful heart, an overflowing heart of thankfulness, I think that takes you to a place and helps God's heart be in a place in a sense, not that he's imperfect, but helps his heart be in a place where he's really prepared to bless you and to reveal you more, reveal more about himself to you. So what I wanted to do here is I'd love it if uh, people could just throw in, what are you actually thankful to the Lord about? Let's, let's lubricate the praise and the worship today with what you're thankful to God about. I've, uh, I've asked three people to uh, come and just offer a prayer of thanks to the Lord today. I'd, I'd give them a script and tell them to memorise it so that they could pray it. They're just praying what's on their heart about uh, how they want to offer, well, the thanks that they want to offer to God. So there's Sophie and uh, Jazz and um, Ted. If you guys would like to come out the front and lead us in prayer, that'd be great. Come on, guys. just read in Psalm 145, it says, one generation will tell of your fame to another. And we've got, in a sense, different generations here. So, uh, Sophie, do you want to go first? And then Jazz, and then Ted? Yeah? Now, we're going to have a, uh, a time later on in the uh, service where uh, the kids are going to be a little bit more in the forefront in terms of the things that they're thankful for. And to be able to make that happen, what we actually want to do is uh, hand out some paper to the kids with some crayons and pencils up the back and what we'd love kids if you're listening is for you to get a piece of paper and some crayons and pencils and actually draw something that you're really thankful to God for all right and then later on in the service you're going to have an opportunity to stand up the front and show everyone your picture and tell everyone what you're really thankful to God for all right so I'm going to go on to uh, talk about another couple of verses why don't all of you guys uh, go up the back and organize your pieces of paper and pencils and so forth Verse 3, 4 and 5 are the response to the, uh, the priest as to why you should worship the Lord. This is the people saying, For the Lord's a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. God is supreme, isn't he? It doesn't matter what God you can actually bring up and say, He's a big God. God's bigger. I think there's a new movie going to be coming out soon called Thor, which is the Greek God with the hammer, that guy. Well, God's bigger. He's more supreme than him. You think about it. What can you come up with? Maybe you think Allah. Allah seems pretty powerful. He's pint size compared to God, isn't he? God is supreme over Allah. God is supreme over Buddha. You know, God is supreme not just over Allah and Buddha, but God's supreme over the Adam isn't he? 
Hasn't Fukushima just taught us that human beings are not very good at controlling the atom? I think they are, but God's supreme over the atom. God's supreme over the rain. Dr. Toowoomba went through probably 10 years of drought. God can just bring it when he wants. God's supreme over life and death. He's supreme over wars, animals. He's supreme over your finances. He's supreme over houses. God's supreme over cancer cells, isn't he? He's supreme over cancer cells. He's supreme over viruses. I mean, Nathan's wife and, and kids have been sick, and that's why they're not here today. He's supreme over that. He's boss over that. He's king. He's supreme over stubborn hearts. Who here knows someone who's got a stubborn heart and won't bow the knee to Christ? They've been witnessed to. There's been some evangelism. Well, Christ is supreme over that. He's the supreme king. He's supreme over your enemies. He's supreme over bullies at school. He's supreme over hurtful words, powerful grief, deep hurt. He's supreme over your future, your past, the devil, and every other spiritual power that exists outside of the devil. He's supreme. He is the great king. One of the things we talk about at our house, uh, I remember having these extended theological discussions about uh, God and all these superheroes that have a rumble. And the question was always, if Jesus had a rumble with Superman, who would win? All right? And I taught the boys, I said, if Jesus has a, a, a rumble with Superman, Jesus wins. And I asked them, I said, how fast does Jesus win? Like that. He just wins like that. Okay, all right, so we've got Superman. Let's get Spider-Man, um, Batman, uh, Iron Man, uh, The Flash. Um, let's get them all in. And let's say they all get in a cage and have a cage fight with Jesus. Who wins? Jesus does because he's the great king because he's the strongest. And it's over like that. And then I thought, well, you shouldn't ever have rumbles. And we teach our boys, don't ever have a rumble with a girl. But I thought, what even if you just throw in Dora? I don't know. All right? You could put Dora in. But you know what? Jesus is supreme over Dora too. And then I thought, oh, man, we're going to get into some worship here. But you guys ever played with this? I played, though. Can one of your kids come and make a snake for me? Yeah, come on, Anna, come out the front. Can you make a snake for me? That'd be cool. All right, this is good. See, this is Play-Doh. All right? This is cool. We've got a snake there. Maybe a snake that hangs out at Fukushima, but it's getting good. It's good. It's good. That's about all I can do. I can't do anything else. Do you want to show everyone your snake? Cool snake? Yeah, cool snake. All right? And this is exactly what it's saying here in verse... uh, Verse 3, 4, and 5, God shapes it. But notice, notice the way it puts it in, 3, 4, and 5. It actually doesn't, it doesn't just say, that was nice work, Anna. It doesn't just say that uh, God shapes it, but what else does it say about God's hand? That he actually holds it. So the world's not just God shaped, it's actually God held. Isn't that beautiful? That's a reason to praise. That's a, that's a reason to worship. We might leave it at that. God has it all in his hands. Let's have a bit of worship, eh? Let's have a bit of response time to Christ. Because every time Jesus shows up in the Bible, people pretty much just fall on their face flat as though they're dead. You get that in Revelation. You get it in Isaiah 6 with Isaiah. 
there's a physical response to God. So I thought, let's uh, think for a little bit about the physical responses that people have when they're singing worship. One of them is closing their eyes. So why do people close their eyes? And the best reason I can come up with why people close their eyes is because it helps them to focus on God. So if you see someone around the place closing their eyes, they've either had a really late night or they're focusing on God. All right? That's kind of how it works. So you can do that if you want. And uh, I'd encourage you, we're going to have another little worship time in a minute here. I'd encourage you to be more physically expressive of your worship for God, making sure that it does come from a heart of worship for God. So one way you can do that is to close your eyes. Do you have to do any of these? No, you don't. I'm just throwing them out to you. The second thing that you could do is you could actually lift up your hands. I defy anyone who's ever been to a State of Origin game at Suncorp Stadium to not stick their hands up when they think that Queensland or New South Wales have done a really good thing. Don't you do that? Don't you stick up your hands and you go, yeah, like that, or yeah, I don't know, whatever you do. You get what I'm saying? You do. When you see something that's worthy of worship, you worship it. And there's a sense in which your body gets involved in that. So I think one of the meanings for raising your hands, and the Bible talks a fair bit about lifting your hands up when you worship, is that you are just honouring someone who's so much more supreme than you, so much greater than you, so much greater than anything else, that you're just going to give yourself to him. But let me give you another couple of scriptural reasons why you raise your hands. Psalm 141 verse 2 says, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So let me tell you my understanding of what used to happen with the sacrifices. Uh, There'd be a morning and an evening sacrifice every single day, as well as other ones during the day. And what they'd do is they'd bring a lamb, pretty sure it was a lamb, and they'd kill the lamb. And you know what the priest would do? He'd offer the lamb, the slain lamb, to God. And David, in Psalm 141, actually, I think it's David, you don't have to check the author, but the psalmist in Psalm 141 says when he lifts his hands, it's like he's lifting up a sacrifice. Who do you think the sacrifice is? Who do you think it is? It's you. So, you know, you could lift your hands to God, according to Psalm 141 verse 2, and you could be saying to God, God, I'm I'm the slain animal, I'm your sacrifice, and I'm giving myself to you. Let me give you another scripture that explains why people raise their hands biblically. Psalm 28 verse 2 says this, Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. You know what this is? And this is where the, the kids here have done this for sure, right? Any kids who are listening to me? Don't they do this? They've just axed themselves on something. They've whacked their head into something and they come to their parents and they, they're crying. What do they want? I want to get picked up. I need some mercy. I need some help. And biblically, there's a case here to say that you sticking your hands up is if you're in a place and it's nasty and it hurts and you need some help, well, you're just going to go back however old you are until you get to about two or three and you stick your hands up and you say, Daddy, I need help and I need some mercy because I'm in a dodgy spot right now. You get that? So there's three reasons. One is you think, man, he's great, and no one has to raise their hands today, but one reason you could do it is, God, you're so great. I'm just going to worship you. Second one is, I'm a sacrifice to you. And the third one is, I'm a kid, and I'm in strife, and I need your help, and I need your mercy. Please pick me up. Please pick me up and help me. 
Verse 7, here's the response to the call of worship. For he's our God. We're the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. What are we? We're sheep, all right? Tim Keller said that whenever God calls you a sheep, it's a carefully, a, a careful planned insult because sheep are stupid, all right? Stupid. Sheep are stupid, all right? Listen to some, this is a pastor on, uh, on sheep. He says, a sheep is a stupid animal. It loses its direction continually in a way that a cat or dog never does. Even when you find a lost sheep, the lost sheep rushes to and fro and won't follow you home. So when you find it, you must seize it, throw it to the ground, tie its forelegs and hind legs together, put it over your shoulder and carry it home. That's the only way to save a lost sheep. If your dog needed to be rescued, you just need to find it and then it would probably follow you home. A sheep contributes nothing to being saved. Whenever you save it from a dodgy spot, you've actually got to lead it and actually carry it carry it home. And Tim Keller said that he noticed this when uh, he was over in England. They would drive around the remote parts of Britain and they'd see sheep eating grass uh, in some of the most dangerous places and they'd just follow the grass. And then they'd get to a place that they couldn't get out of. And they'd sit down and they couldn't get out. The only hope was for someone to rescue them. And, and he actually said that they saw sheep that would just tumble to their deaths off the edge of the cliff because they'd go chasing some nice grass. We're stupid, aren't we? Aren't we dumb? I mean, we'd, we could raise our hands to that, couldn't we? It's just, uh, yeah, I'm dumb. Last week I've been really dumb. But you know, what's the good news for a dumb sheep? Well, he's got a good shepherd, isn't it? Isn't that the good news? Because a dumb sheep needs a good, strong, great, supreme shepherd that's going to come and help and seek it when it gets lost. It is such a cool thing that we are the sheep of his hand. We think sheep are cute and cuddly, and they are cute and cuddly, but they're dumb, and they need a good shepherd, and we have a good shepherd. A bit of a thought about uh, why we need community for uh, worship. Uh, one reason why community, uh, why worship is a community project. Let me just say, kids, it's been sensational having you guys in church. I just love that, sitting up the back listening to you kids talk about what you're thankful for. Uh, and probably what we've seen through the people that have contributed with prayers and uh, the kids is that our worship of God gets enhanced, doesn't it, when we hear other people worship God. doesn't matter how old they are. And uh, a classic example of this... Um, which I'd like to just uh, highlight now, is actually the difference in the call between Isaiah and Jeremiah. I don't know whether you've uh, ever noticed that, but if you look uh, in uh, Isaiah chapter 6, you actually see the uh, the call of Isaiah. Uh, where, and this is how it goes. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe to me, for I am lost. And woe actually means a curse be upon me. So this is Isaiah saying, A curse be upon me because I've seen God. For I am lost, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah, as far as we can tell, had a bit of a priestly role in Jerusalem, and that's where most of his prophetic um, 
ministry was spent. He was the prophet in the big city. Jeremiah, on the other hand, was a prophet in the little town. And can you see, in a sense here, the way that God calls Isaiah is God's coming in, he's going, you need to be humbled, man, from the big city. So I'm going to show you big God. I'm showing you big God because you need to be humble. What does he do with Jeremiah? Check this out. Jeremiah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I knew you in the womb, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, ah, Lord God, behold, I don't know how to speak for I'm only a youth. Can you hear like country, hick, town, person who just doesn't rate themselves? Can you hear that? And what does God do? He comes in and he goes, but the Lord said to me, don't say I'm only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Don't be afraid of them, young man, for I'm with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. And the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, behold, I put my words in your mouth. See, I've set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. You see this? If you could, Isaiah and Jeremiah were not contemporaries, but if you could get Isaiah and Jeremiah together, what would Isaiah say about God? Oh, he's awesome, man. Like, you just look out. He's incredible. You can't even get in the temple because of his presence in there. What's what's Jeremiah going to say? Jeremiah's going to go, man, he is so tender. I just didn't rate myself. I didn't think I had anything to offer. And he came alongside me and told me he was going to be with me and he was going to help me. And you can see how if Isaiah and and Jeremiah were able to get in the community, they'd be able to enhance each other's worship because Jeremiah would learn from Isaiah that God's awesome and he's incredible and he's great and he fills the temple. And Isaiah would learn from Jeremiah that God's tender and he's kind and he's gentle. And this is why we're we're in, in the process of the project here of starting community groups. This is what you can gain from being in community groups. This is one of the things. When you're in biblical community, you hear other people talk about Jesus. You hear other people talk about God like the kids did today and you get blessed and your own worship gets enhanced and it becomes more concentrated um, as, you, as you hear that. I wanted to just uh, invite Diff up. He's just going to share with you a little story out of... Uh, I was going to have Nathan Hitsky here. He'd uh, been teed up to share just for five minutes but uh, he's had to go to hospital. Um, overnight because of a, a bit of a racing heart, so you could pray for him. But uh, this is going to share a story out of uh, uh, Narnia. All right, so uh, at the start of Chris Caspian, who's read the Narnia series, uh, the four Penavensi kids go back to Narnia and they meet up with Crumpkin and Dwarf. And essentially Crumpkin um, kind of tells them that the reason that they're there is to go and help out with um, with Prince Caspian in the war that is getting fought there. And the four kids, they kind of go through this process of proving themselves, proving that they are the old high kings of Narnia and queens of Narnia by shooting their arrows and using their swords and using their special abilities that, that, that Sam or Christmas gave to them back in, in line with the wardrobe, using their special gifts that they've been given. And they prove themselves. So they, they prove themselves as these mighty warriors. And they've, set, they've, they've gone through this process of showing that to the world standard, to Trumpkin's standard, they, they are good, and they know what's going on. And then they set off on their course to try to find where Caspian is. And they listen to Trumpet, because Trumpet knows Narnia, and Narnia's changed a little bit since they've been there. So they listen to Trumpet, and Trumpet says, we've got to follow, I'm pretty sure we've got to follow the river. 
Come here, Susan. You've got to follow this river. And then one night, Lucy wakes up and she sees Aslan. And the next morning, Aslan says to her that night, he says, you've got to follow me. You've got to go the way that I want to go and not follow the river. And the next morning, she, well, even that night, she wakes up everyone and she tells her brothers and sisters, I've just seen Aslan. And they say, well, where is he? And she said, well, he's gone. But he told me that we need to go this way. We don't have to follow the river. We shouldn't listen to Trumpkin. Trumpkin didn't even believe in Aslan at this point. We shouldn't listen to Trumpkin just because he knows the way. We need to listen to Aslan. And they say, well, we didn't see, we didn't see Aslan. And we don't believe him. And this really hurt Lucy. And Lucy said, no, we need to go this way. And they didn't. And they kept following Trumpkin. They kept following the river. And then Aslan showed up again. So Lucy and said, you've got to follow me. You have to follow me. And they just wouldn't do it. They just listened to the world and the way that Trumpkin said and to the wisdom of the world. They'd proven themselves in all the world with standards. But when the real test came about trusting in Aslan and trusting in the revelation that someone had been given, they didn't do it. And it isn't until Edmund, who is initially in, in the London Mission of Wardrobe, you remember, is it's the guy who, first of all, joins the London Mission and actually betrays the whole group. He starts to say... Well, Lucy was the first one to see Aslan in the first place. She was, she was always this one with this childlike faith in Aslan. Maybe we should listen to her. And as one by one, and they start to believe, and they start to believe in the revelation that Lucy's been given, then they start to get these little glimpses of Aslan, these little revelations of Aslan. And slowly, because of their faith, they start to get Aslan starts to reveal himself to them in the same way that he revealed himself to Lucy. Very good. Think about the third weekend of the project, I preached a message about how everyone worships unceasingly. We worship something. We all know that at times we don't see Christ very clearly. We don't see God very clearly, do we? And this is the importance of biblical community. It's, it's like in the story with Lucy there. Lucy, for a while there, was the only one that actually saw Aslan clearly. And, and that's why you need to be in community. That's why we need to have community groups because there's going to be times where things get cloudy for you, where you don't, where your worship of God is not as intense as it could be. And that's an opportunity for you to be with other people who do have some clarity and do see quite clearly, uh, where things are at in a spiritual sense, where they see Christ clearly, they see God clearly. And that's the importance of community. I'm going to close with just reading the, the final few verses of, uh, Psalm 95. After verse 7. Why don't you just follow it with me? Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, They shall not enter my rest. See, worship is individual, corporate, and 24-7. And it always comes out of the heart. Worship is not, we've done a lot of singing worship today. That is ultimately not a container that holds all of worship. Singing is an expression of worship. Singing is not worship. Singing is an expression of worship. And uh, the psalmist goes on to say here at the end of 95, the real issue with people is that their hearts continually go astray. All the more reason why we need to be in a community, isn't it? 
so that we can help each other and encourage each other and bring each other back in and recenter each other on Christ and in pouring our worship out toward him and not to false gods. Why don't you stand with me and I'll pray and we're done for the morning. God, we stand before you now as we would stand if a king or a queen walked into this room. We stand before you and show you honour because you deserve it, because you're a great king, a great king above all gods. He's a great shepherd, the dumb sheep. God, I pray that um, you'd help us all to be overflowing in our talk about you and in our enjoyment about you. Quiet sometimes, maybe sometimes in tears, but overflowing in our talk about you so that other people can get a handle, a better handle on who you are. As they see how you interact with, well, maybe 60 people here today, they see 60 different ways that you tailor things to fit exactly um, the situations that people are in. And God, that will enhance our worship. So Lord, I pray that you'd help us to do that. We just want to honour you today. Uh, We are not worthy of any goodness that comes from your hand, but you're a generous, giving God, gracious God, who condescends, who comes down to help us. We just thank you so much for that. Amen.